Hey guys, welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am honored and thrilled today to be sitting down with Mr. Jimmy Song. And we're going to be exploring <clears throat> what I think is probably one of the most important books someone living in the year 2021 can read, uh, specifically chapter one, which we will be focusing on today. The book is titled Democracy, The God That Failed. And very excited to be talking about this book with you, Jimmy. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I know you always like go super long with this. I, I, I'm a <laughs> little nervous about like how long I'm going to have to be on this podcast and uh, to to wait for, because I'm going to eat steak after this. I was going to do it before, but the previous thing landed a little long. So you're 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 keeping me back from my steak, but so you'll be you'll be testing my uh, patience to a little bit, uh, to to a small degree. Well, I think I think you do have the world record for the most steak eaten in a single sitting. So don't <laughs> don't want to get between between you and that. Um, you're lucky that this is pre-recorded, so we can take a steak break anytime you like. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate so, that. As we were just talking about offline. You know, this specifically chapter one and the introduction to this book are just, in my opinion, one of the most important things anyone can read right now, seeing what's going on in the world. Um, it helps put a lot of the pieces together, I think, of what's going on with government and culture at large, civilization at large, even. Um, mm -hmm. It's as if we have kind of a failed or mistaken socioeconomic software implementation, if you will, with mm -hmm. democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for reasons we'll get into, I, I realize that this is, this may be a rather uh, far claim for some people to come out and say, hey, democracy is a, a broken or flawed model. But I think mm -hmm. uh, the book here lays it out very intelligently. So before we get into that, I think we should talk a bit about economics mm -hmm. and as the author lays out in the introduction, the difference between empirical knowledge and a priori knowledge, or what we just also delineated as empiricism versus rationalism. Uh, I'll read one excerpt from the text here, and then I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Mm. Uh, and the author, the Hans Hermann Hoppe, is that how you pronounce his name? Hoppe, Hoppe. Hoppe. Hans mm -hmm. Hermann Hoppe is the author of Democracy, the God that Failed. And this is an excerpt from the introduction. He said, if one, is, if one is to make a rational choice among such rival and incompatible interpretations, this is only possible if one has a theory at one's disposal, or at least a theoretical proposition whose validity does not depend on historical experience, but can be established a priori, i.e. once and for all by means of the intellectual apprehension or comprehension of the nature of things, unquote. So contrary to the scientific paradigm where we think it's all about observation, there is another realm of knowledge, right? Where we can actually reason about things um, that we can't necessarily sense. Mm -hmm. So, and, and maybe that, 
maybe that's the dividing line is that empiricism relies purely on sense data, what we can see, hear, smell, feel, touch, measure. Whereas, you know, a priori knowledge or rationalism uh, can depend more on reason and things mm-hmm. like mathematics and geometry and physics um, somewhat emanate from this domain. So I'd, I'd love to hear hear your thoughts on that divide. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, ultimately the divide between Keynesian and Austrian views of economics. And uh, it's really about epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, right? Like we're we're making claims about how we come to know things. Mm -hmm. Um, And empiricism is this idea that you only know things through observation um, and that that is the only route. and you know Keynesianism very much falls into that um, empiricist camp. Um, the other side is rationalism, which uh, we which presupposes knowledge. A priori in Latin means from before. So before you do any observation, you you have some theory that you can sort of test out and so on. Um, there there are rational things that you can predict based on. Uh, the sort of like axioms and things like that that you have. And this is what Austrian economics is based on. It's based on a priori knowledge or it's mm-hmm. rationalistic versus something like Keynesianism. And both are really claims about how you get to know things. Um, <laughs> and the thing about, uh, you know, Keynesian or empiricist models is that you, you have a tendency um, to sort of make, generalizations where you know you you've you haven't observed that much or you you don't especially in a dynamic system like the economy it's hard to isolate a variable right like bitcoin is the closest thing that we've actually come to being able to isolate mm. a, a particular thing but mm. in general everything is like entangled with everything else um and you know health observations and things like that come like in very much uh the same way like where it's hard to isolate a particular variable. So when someone tells you, hey, like X is good for you, you, ha- you have no idea that mm-hmm. it was X or something else that, w- that you were doing, which is why like double blind uh, control studies are so important for you know, drug testing and things like that because you, you can control all of these variables. Yeah. But in an economy, you can't really do that. It's, it's very difficult to isolate and say, okay, well, this economy, we're going to do X and this economy, we're going to leave alone, right? Like right. That, that generally doesn't happen. And the situations are very, uh, tend to be different enough that you can't consider one a control group. Um, that said, uh, so empiricism tends to work better when you when you are able to isolate. But when you can't, well, you just sort of like come up with observations and, and make the observations <laughs> sort of the goal, which is what Keynesians tend to do. They want to increase the GDP number, lower the unemployment number, and doesn't matter about the quality of the jobs or the um, the quality of the domestic product that you're getting and so on. <clears throat> you know, you, you could be building like all tanks and using them to destroy, mm-hmm. you know, your own people or something like that. And you would have a high GDP number, but you're not actually producing much. <clears throat> With that in mind, um, you know, uh, Austrian economics, I think, is uh, is a lot more rational and sort of um, gives uh, weight to um, the metaphysical, right? It, it's it it becomes a lot more philosophical, and I see 
you know, science being a child of philosophy where you, mm-hmm. you are able to rationally figure out things instead of merely observing and trying to make rules about it. Although in that sense, that that's metaphysical too. Uh, and I, I think that's largely <laughs> the reason for the failure of Keynesian economic policies, because they, they, they try to just sort of take these aggregate numbers and say, well, okay, if we increase this, then this goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, if you, uh, if you have rising inflation, then unemployment should go down. That was sort of like the theory behind the seventies until, mm-hmm. you know, like they actually tried it and unemployment also went up al- along with inflation, which was okay. Why, why are we get getting stagflation here? What, what's right. going on? Uh, and you 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 can't really do that with, with an economy because it's it's too dynamic and you know just trying to manipulate the outputs is not good enough. Um, although that's sort of the current paradigm right now. Uh, and I think what you know Hoppe is is an Austrian economist, obviously, and and he does take the a priori knowledge uh, and. He's applying essentially to a lot of history, and he does talk about World War One a lot in this book, and uh, you know, in the introduction specifically about like what happened there. Um, but you know, he 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 takes it through sort of like a, a, a rationalist uh, you know explanation of what what's going on, and uh, and he 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 bases it in theory, so it makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. uh, instead of we uh, you know sort of like being a strict historian. This is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. He he's getting a little more into the why, um, and unfortunately, and th- this is probably uh, you know part of what he's trying to establish here. <coughs> History really is written by the winners, and they only let you observe what you want to observe, and they give explanations for uh, for why based on what they want you to uh, observe. So among other things, uh, we are, we, we've been told basically that democracy is the crowning sort of uh, form of government and the only thing that can actually uh, work to secure human rights and so on. And he, this whole book is about putting that on its head and saying, you know what, here's, here's the a priori um, rationalistic argument for why it doesn't work. And actually the observations that we've made over the last hundred years um, kind of show that we're going down this very bad path of, uh, of uh, all, all sorts of evil things happening, um, you know, degeneration of all mm-hmm. kinds um, and uh, really a decivilization mm-hmm. uh, of society that that um, the opposite should uh, should be happening if if a democracy were this amazingly good thing. Yes. So there's we have the empirical version of deriving knowledge, which comes from our senses, and we have this a priori method, which is much it's more fundamental, right? Which, to your point. Mm-hmm it's almost born of philosophy or part of philosophy. If we define philosophy Mm -hmm. as trying to get to the fundamental nature of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been largely disregarded by Keynesian economists. And, um, you know, it's been, it it almost, they like Mises said that economics is the youngest science. It's almost as if we've just recently in the arc of human history begun began to, we've begun to understand that this method of deriving knowledge 
is more important to economics than, than Keynesian economics. Yeah. Um, and the, the analogy I like here is geometry, right? We know that Euclidean geometry has five axioms essentially from which mm -hmm. all of its uh, body of knowledge is derived. Economics in a, the pure sense here is sort of similar. We have like man must mm -hmm. act, um, mm -hmm. marginal uh, utility of, of value and things like this that we can derive mm -hmm. many theorems from. Whereas Keynesian economics is suffering from more like the physics envy type thing that it seems mm -hmm. like a lot of sciences <laughs> suffer from that they want mm -hmm. super precise mathematical uh, empirically verifiable observations for everything to explain everything. And it's just not possible actually. Um, mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it's, it is, there's a difference between physical and metaphysical because it all comes down to the mm -hmm. sense data versus deriving things from reason itself. Mm -hmm. So we know that mathematics is like the bedrock of civilization. And I think this is the awareness is dawning upon us is that economics is very close to that and that it's derived mm -hmm. from a priori knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. And then this, so he's using this platform, I guess this bedrock of reasoning to make the case largely about specifically in chapter one, the relationship between civilization and time preference. Hmm. So saying that the aggregate reflection of time preference in the world is how civilized we are and how different hmm. governance models, specifically democracy versus monarchy, um, affect or influence time preference. Hmm. Um, so I'll read, I think he, he, this chapter one, man, the writing is mm -hmm. superb and he goes, he just gets straight to the point. So I'll, I'll read his opening paragraph. He says in acting an actor invariably aims to substitute a more satisfactory for a less satisfactory state of affairs and thus demonstrates a preference for more rather than fewer goods. Moreover, he invariably considers when in the future, his goals will be reached, i.e. the time necessary to accomplish them, as well as a good's duration of serviceability. Thus, he also demonstrates a universal preference for earlier over later goods and for more over less durable ones. This is the phenomenon of time preference. Hmm. So this very basic fundamental truth of living, uh, you know, amid conditions of scarcity and having a finite life from this bedrock that we all know and understand, uh, he's, he will reason forth, um, about really, you know, models of governance. So how do you, if he's explaining time preference in this way, is that, is civilization just that? Is it just a reflection of aggregate time preference, in your opinion? Well, it, it's the result of people having low time preference, right? Like, and it, it, it's, uh, you can almost like sense it, right? Like, it, it, it's very obvious when you go to a city whether or not they have low or high time preference. So, if you see graffiti everywhere, if you see rundown buildings, if you mm. see um, you know, that that's obviously high time preference, like somebody like 
put a rock through the window or uh, spray graffiti because they didn't care what the consequences would be or how the neighborhood would look or something like that. Uh, whereas if you see something clean or, you know, like some really nice classical architecture or building that's been there for a couple hundred years, that's immaculately maintained and things like that in cities like, you know, Paris or, uh, you know, some parts of London and things like that. You know, you, you get the sense that this is civilization building. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's the result of somebody that planned from a long time ago because um, it takes a lot to build, say, a cathedral. You know, th those were usually like 100, 200 year affairs. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it took the community that uh, took a community uh, like most of this was most of that stuff was built on volunteer labor, too. Right. Like it took a, a community of people that were willing to forego even um, you know, something good within their lifetime and build something that would last generations for their legacy. Mm -hmm. um, and that's low time, like that's extremely low time preference behavior, uh, not even being able to reap within your own lifetime, but within uh, you know, the lifetime of your children and your children's children and so on. Um, that is what builds up all of these things. Um, you know, what, what he's pointing to here is that, um, you know, as societies get, higher time preference um you know there there is a tendency to not build things that last right like mm -hmm. and this is what he calls i think decivilizing versus low time preference behavior which is literally just building things that last longer um instead of building something just for now and you could kind of see it uh you know a lot right now even in something like architecture because a lot of homes just get destroyed after 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. They're out of style or something like that. They're built with cheap materials, um, you know, uh, you know, sheetrock and you know, wood and stuff like that mm -hmm. to make it very easy to tear down and build it back up again. Whereas, you know, say if it's a cathedral, it's made out of stone. It's mm -hmm. intricately carved. You have stained glass and all kinds of things that are very difficult to make, uh, or at least that they were at that time. Um, and take hundreds of years for that reason, but it's going to last a long time. There are cathedrals in Europe that have lasted over a thousand years, right? Like right. that—that's—that's—that's that's really lasting. That's civilization building. Uh, whereas you know some some of the stuff that's being built now um, is very high time preference. It's just for my lifetime, and you know, like for some people, it's even much shorter than that. It's mm -hmm. okay, whatever I'm going to do for the next couple of years. And, you know, some of the most destructive people are, you know, people that are very high time preference. I, I need the next hit of a drug or something like that. Right. Um, and they're willing to go and smash windows and steal from other people and do all these things that, you know, like essentially destroy uh, in order to satisfy their needs or wants for now. Um, and that that to me is the big difference uh between low time preference behavior and high time preference behavior where i would um disagree with hapa a little bit is that there is sort of like a morality component to this that mm -hmm. i i don't think he quite really articulates uh he might even agree with it but i, I don't think he really articulates which is that you know uh low time preference behavior is one aspect that's uh that's what a christian would call prudence right like being wise about time and thinking ahead and uh and doing something like that um 
But that's just one aspect. There, there are other aspects uh, of virtue that also need to be present in order for civilization to really emerge. Um, you know, that, those include stuff like, you know, justice and fortitude and, uh, and temperance. Um, so justice is like making sure that other people get fair, uh, get treated fairly uh, in, in whatever interaction. Um, it's possible to be prudent, but not just, right? Like, it, it, and in that case, it would also be kind of decivilizing. Um, you know, I, I believe the Chinese emperor that created the Great Wall of China, like he predicted 10,000 generations, but he he treated everyone so badly that, uh, you know, the next generation, his uh, dynasty got taken over and, mm. you know, he, he built something great, but, and it's lasted, but it's not, you know, he didn't really build civilization per se because, yeah. um, you know, they, they didn't really, really last. Um, and, you know, the, the other virtues like, uh, you know, the, these would be the cardinal virtues, fortitude and temperance uh, are also necessary. You can't just do, um, you, you need to do things the right amount, which is kind mm -hmm. of part of prudence. Um, and you need to also uh, be courageous about doing some of that stuff, which mm -hmm. uh, which we can definitely talk about. It's it's hard to build things without some courage. It's it's hard to be an entrepreneur or to start something, uh, given all of the uncertainty of the future, without without some courage. Um, and that's that's what fortitude essentially is. Yeah. So it's it really does start with the relationship between you and yourself, ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. That is really time preferences. If you consider yourself. I like the analogy that we're each a community of ourselves mm -hmm. stretched across time, right? You're yourself mm -hmm. today and tomorrow and the next day and so on and so forth. The lower your time preference, the more of that community you're taking into account of yourself. Mm. And then that's also the case with others. Um, I think mm. Peterson calls these abstract others, which is like your future mm. selves and all of the <laughs> others around you. So lowering uh, our time preference is expanding this concern for others effectively mm. and you know virtue i guess that's kind of the soil from where virtue springs a little bit like it doesn't just mm -hmm. create virtue but once you when you've lowered your time preference mm -hmm. uh you're more likely to adopt these different virtues that, that you're laying out here um mm -hmm. because they're more suitable for dealing with you know for taking care of those that larger community um it you tend towards more selfless behavior, I guess, would be the general theme versus selfish, mm. high time preference behavior. And yeah, this is something that he points out, right? Like yes. all, all about how um, if you are satisfied materially now, you tend to think a lot more about the future. Mm -hmm. But if you if you are not satisfied now, then you're going to think about now. And that's uh, right. that is like low versus high time preference behavior. But there, but there is some. Uh, well, there is in one sense, like virtue um, begets virtue, right? Like mm -hmm. you, the more virtuous you are, the more virtuous you will become because it will, you know, satisfy you in, in, in certain other ways. Um, but there, there is a sense in which um, you, you need to bootstrap this somehow. And, mm -hmm. and right. that, that's, right. that's uh, not necessarily easy in a civilization or a society that is very high time preference because it's hard to anchor yourself in at least, you know, this virtue of prudence of thinking long-term without, you know, say having a sound money, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I guess the, the other point here that's real key is that time preference is always positive, which he pretty much lays out in the first paragraph. All things being equal, we always prefer, you know, today versus later, unless there's the prospect of more later. If there's not the prospect mm. of more later, we want to receive the good, the service, whatever it is now. Mm. Um, but as we lower the time preference, as we said, we're, it is actually encouraging us to live life beyond ourself, our own individual mm -hmm. ego, right? We start to consider our future self and others. And to mm -hmm. your point, it's not, I, I guess it's not, and this is where most things seem to be this way, actually, there's a reciprocity between them, right? You could have, mm -hmm. you could consciously be more virtuous and that would cause you to lower mm -hmm. your time preference or mm -hmm. Maybe perhaps there's some external incentives that could lower your time preference that could cause you to be more virtuous. There seems to be a feedback between the two. Mm -hmm. And I, um, so to, to connect this to, the, to the, the metaphysical or Christian domain, which I thought this was interesting, mm -hmm. he makes the point that if man were not constrained by time, if there were no scarcity mm -hmm. of time, that he would effectively always save and never consume. Mm -hmm. So... It, this just sprang to mind, like, is that in, you know, in Christian mm -hmm. tradition, we talk about, you know, God saving and Jesus saving and being eternal. Mm -hmm. It's like this, there's something beyond time that saves mm -hmm. us in a way. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, I don't know if there's a coincidence that the word saving and saved are the <laughs> same, but they both mm -hmm. sort of lead us the same direction toward the, towards mm -hmm. this eternal timelessness. Do you think this is just related to those metaphysical principles that are that are kind of timeless for for humans? Yeah, I mean, if you think of uh, debt as consumption without any savings, right? Um, that that's kind of uh, the the situation we're put in with um, with the Christian uh, conception of you know sin and you know our morals is that right. every time we sin, we are essentially consuming without any saving. Uh, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the redemption of Christ is paying for all of that. Um, it's it's uh, paying for the debt that we've essentially accumulated. So in a, in a sense, uh, the, the constraint of time is uh, allows for this debt accumulation, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. which, which from a Christian perspective, that debt gets, it gets paid off by somebody else because uh, we we have no real way to pay for um, that which we've consumed, which I guess is in a sense a metaphysical consumption um, and not just a physical consumption. So mm -hmm. when you uh, you know the Christian conception is that every time you commit a sin, you're you're not just offending God. There there's like a real debt, a metaphysical mm -hmm. debt that is impossible to pay off. It's it's not something that we have currency in, right? Like the the only one with money in that economy to be able to pay it off is is God and it right. it requires Christ to pay that off. Um so, you know, uh, to bring it back to sort of like the constraint of time. I think you, you need uh in that metaphysical realm, you you need somebody that uh, well in that metaphysical realm, I, I think it's kind of timeless. I, 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 I my philosophy there isn't completely developed. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there, there is sort of like a timelessness to 
all things metaphysical, they just sort of exist, right? Like yeah. the number five didn't have a creation or something. Right. Um, but, uh, but that, that requires uh, a timeless being that, that can just sort of pay for it. And, um, it, you know, in, uh, in a debt that's hard for us to really grasp because it is a metaphysical debt. Um, and it is a debt in that realm of the spirit, as you would say, um, that, that it needs to be paid off. So, yeah. 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 It's like we, and this was from our recent book club, that connection between Mm -hmm. the words debt and deception. Mm -hmm. I think it was in the, it was either in Hebrew or Greek where they were almost Mm -hmm. synonymous terms. Um, Mm -hmm. And that uh, the word sin to derive from, I think it's hamartia, which is the archery term for missing the mark. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like we're we're incurring these costs, and mm-hmm. you know you don't need you could consider sin and the the very Judeo Christian sense, or you, I really think about it as just missing the mark. It's like when we make an effort mm-hmm. towards something, towards an aim, mm-hmm. whether the aim was wrong or we just missed the aim. That's kind of a, a sin, right? You missed. Mm-hmm. Um, and these virtues that we're alluding to, they certainly seem to be timeless, right? It's like no matter mm-hmm. where in history you look, mm-hmm. justice, fortitude, prudence, all of these things um, seem to be a net benefit to anyone mm-hmm. um, in any situation almost. So it's very interesting making that connection. Um, to take this back to the book here. so. I think the next point he really lays out is the the natural interest rate mm. and its importance um, on time preference. So, and we we often think of the interest rate as the price of money or the cost of capital, which is true in a sense. But I think more fundamentally, it is the ratio at which actors value the future to the present. Mm. So. Um, one of the ways I think about this is if you have a higher interest in obtaining things now, right? You have a higher mm-hmm. time preference. That means there's a higher interest rate. So you're discounting things um, mm-hmm. more heavily, basically from the future mm-hmm. backward. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes into the point, really making the point that savings is that which underpins investment and the interest rate is what mediates between the two, right? So mm. this the interest rate is in incentivizing people to save, and it's also determining uh, the demand for goods that people believe can contribute to outperforming that hurdle rate, right? So, so mm-hmm. investors can borrow and, and um, use capital to, to improve civilization, frankly, and lower time preference mm-hmm. further. Um, so that's something that's very interesting is that we, you know, we hear about interest rates a lot. We think it's some kind of obscure macroeconomic term, but it's not, it's something fundamentally psychological or perceptual even, and it's related to mm-hmm. our time preference. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how you, yeah, how you it, see that? Yeah, it, it is sort of like a measurement of, of time preference, right? Because uh, in a sense, uh, it, the interest rate, at least in a you know a sound money economy, it tells you something about um, how much they prefer now to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, in a fiat money system, the interest rate doesn't tell you very much. In fact, yes. it is 
purposefully manipulated because for a Keynesian, that's just one of the variables that you use to get the numbers that you want on GDP or unemployment or something right. like that, instead of what is, uh, you know, um, and it, it reflects more in, you know, your station in life rather than in, uh, in your actual virtue, which I, mm -hmm. I think, in a sense, uh, this, this is what it's getting at is um, the more low time preference you are, the more prudent you are and mm -hmm. the more uh, uh the less of a discount you require in order to take money in the future instead of now uh but instead it's become this thing where you know it, it's dependent entirely on the access that you might have to certain loans so if you're mark zuckerberg you can get a mortgage at one percent um mm -hmm. if you have a you know 750 plus credit score you can get a mortgage at three percent. If you are, you know, subprime or something like that, then you know, base base it, it's it's scored a little differently and based more on your income or your um, credit history and things like that. Right. Which you know, I, to be to be frank, that's not a terrible um, you know measure of time preference, right? Because a credit score tells the lender, okay, how many times did this person sort of like do badly uh, once they got a loan. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does, it, it is interesting that you could kind of put a number on it, um, yeah. but it only really works when you have a sound money that isn't constantly changing because the measurement um, is no longer valid once you have an inflating currency because uh, you know whoever is inflating it out is going to lend it out at a much lower interest rate than the market would. Yeah, it's confusing because with the unnatural interest rate that we observe today, it's mm -hmm. clearly at or below zero, which sounds great in this framework. It's like, oh, we're very civilized, <laughs> but it's because it's manipulated. So the natural interest mm -hmm. rate would actually be much higher. Um, and so I guess fundamental to this, you know, he makes the point that for animals, let's say their natural interest rate is basically infinite because mm -hmm. they cannot they cannot overcome this impulse to consume and save the way humans can. Humans can reason about the world and ourselves, mm -hmm. and we can decide I'm going to eat a little more now and save for the future mm -hmm. and actually increase our productivity over time. Whereas animals are just kind of led by instinct in a mm -hmm. way. So you could say then in that lens that this is almost the quantifiable metric that uh, discriminates man from animal in a way, right? And the measure of a civilization would be getting that natural interest rate as close to zero as possible. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, to put a moral spin on it, um, I, I think what separates animals from humans is virtue. It's the ability yeah. to do good yeah. things, right? And uh, and if you if you are able to, you know, not consume now so you can consume later, that 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 is what makes you kind of different from an animal. Oh, that said, of course, like there are animals that plan for the future, right? Yes, like of course. Squirrels hide nuts and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, yeah, bears hibernate by eating a lot more first and, and, and things like that. But talking more about sort of like the long term and, uh, and, and, and doing things that, uh, that can help not just you, but your legacy and, and, and things of that nature. Um, and for people like that, um, the natural interest rate does reduce. And I, I, I do think there's a connection here between 
this and sort of like the traditional, um, I guess, uh, maybe Thomistic uh, conception of usury, which is that uh, for like a lot of church forefathers thought that, uh, you know, the only interest rate that you can charge is zero. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, like this is something that Safedine's told me about, uh, you know, his faith, too, is that you know, in the Muslim world, the only legitimate interest rate that you can charge is zero as well. Right. And he's like, well, why, why is that? What, what, what happens as people become more civilized? Well, they're, they lower and lower, uh, you get lower and lower time preference. And I think it does asymptotically go to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, like the, the process of civilization is a, um, is an increase in virtue of all of its members, right? Like, right. and that uh, eventually leads to a point where, you know, like you're you're willing to lend at zero, um, especially under sound money, because what you get back is worth more, even if yes. it's the same amount nominally, because, you know, like things will have progressed in the, you know, few years or a few months that, uh, that you lent it out, where, you know, things will be much, you know, like, technology will have progress and more things will be built and things will get more efficient so that you'll be able to buy more with the same amount of money. So in a sense, maybe usury like laws do make sense, or Mm -hmm. at least considering a positive interest rate as immoral at a certain point uh, when you have sound money, because it is ultimately an exercise of virtue and you know, like it, it, it helps the rest of civilization. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't like compelling anybody. So like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how, uh, like, you know, it could be considered moral, but legal, uh, immoral, but legal, something like that. I, I'm not yeah. sure, but there, there is that connection there, which I hadn't really thought of until you brought this up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on your, your first point there, that animals certainly do seem to exhibit some kind of time preference, some more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big difference, it seems to be, is this human capacity to change our behavior that we, mm-hmm. you know, you can consciously adopt a new lifestyle. Basically, you can program yourself to do something completely different. You don't see too many squirrels doing that, right? Like going on a diet, like a nut-free diet. <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> um, and this, this idea of usury, I had a a friend of mine told me once that he thought that usury was outlawed because it was written at a time when hard money was the norm. So mm-hmm. to your point, like if you lent out money at 0% and received it back, there tended to be kind of a built-in interest rate to that because mm-hmm. as the economy progressed, the money tended to appreciate in tandem. Um, mm-hmm. That it, that it usually typically had, you know, over, um, average time spans more purchasing power when it was returned than when it was lent out. So I think that's really interesting, but, um, it seems like from a moral perspective, it would just be correct to let the market sort that out. Just let the Mm -hmm. market determine what the interest rate is. But, um, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting that, you know, certain wisdom traditions, including, um, Christianity sort of, um, say that usury is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it kind of, it's interesting because I, I believe, uh, I, I read a book recently on like Catholic um, social teaching and stuff. I, I think it's now allowed for you to lend out as long as you're 
lending out at the interest rate that at, at which like the money is expanding, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I guess um, you know that that would effectively be a zero percent interest rate from a usury standpoint, and that mm-hmm. that might be a reasonable approximation of what what would be is all right lending out at seven percent in the current economy might not be so bad like that yeah. that like you know i mean that's actually like a decent return and i think there's yeah. a lot of people that would take that in a heartbeat um so i mean it, it might just sort of be uh the the whole idea of usury might be like don't go above or below the market just let yeah. lend at a fair price right like right. and Zero percent percent would be the fair price in a sound money economy. Um, in a weird, uh, you know, like uh, corrupted money economy like we have today, um, the interest rate should probably be pegged to the monetary expansion rate, which is around seven percent. And right. coincidentally, that's actually not like that. That seems pretty reasonable right. on both sides, right? Yeah. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Okay, so I'm going to branch now into this conversation on capital. And I wanna read an Mm -hmm. excerpt again from chapter one. Hoppe says, capital goods have no value except as intermediate products in the process of turning out final, which are consumer goods later. And insofar as the production of final products is more productive with than without them, or what amounts to the same thing, insofar as he who possesses and can produce with the aid of capital goods is nearer in time to the completion of his ultimate goal than he who must do without them. Hmm. And then in regards to the price of capital, he says it is the price paid for buying time for moving closer to the completion of one's ultimate goal, rather than having to start at the very beginning. This is something that's so philosophically interesting to me that (laughs) capital is time or time savings or a stock of time, something like that. And, Mm. you know, it's, he kind of explains it two ways. One is that it amplifies the production rate of consumption goods. So if we're trying to produce, you know, we can produce more units of food per man hour, let's say. So there's a, a net increase to our utility of time through using capital. Uh, 
But he also says the holders of capital, which is kind of looking at the same thing from another way, the holders of capital are closer in time to the realization of their goals. So capital lets you just achieve your goal more quickly. So it's kind of a form of stored time in a way. And therefore the cost of capital, which again is the, the natural interest rate is just the price paid for buying time effectively. And again, if we're looking at this gap between, you know, we're humans living within time, trying to overcome the scarcity it imposes upon us, mm-hmm. saving and capital accumulation. These, these are the scaffolding by which we build civilization, right? We're, we're trying to pull ourselves up, bootstrap ourselves, I guess, out of scarcity and into abundance. And it's only through this act of saving and capital accumulation that we're able to do that. Yeah, the the whole um, idea of capital is interesting because it, it really is about investment in the sense that you are putting your time into something that will save you time later. So it, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, you know, in Safety's book, the whole analogy of you know, building a fishing pole so that you can fish more efficiently and then that leading to building a boat so that you can fish more efficiently mm-hmm. all the way up to today where you have these fishing vessels that take like five years to build. But once you build them, you only need like 12 men for a few months to catch like um, a million fish or something, yeah. something to right. that effect where it's, it's insane amounts of food that you can accumulate very quickly. Whereas, uh, you know, the very inefficient way of catching with your hands to do that would take like a million lifetimes, right? Like right. To, to catch the amount that 12 men can do in like uh, a matter of like six weeks or something to that effect. So that uh, that is really the the accumulation, uh, the, the virtue behind capital accumulation is that it lets you be much more efficient with your time. And I, I think as like Hoppe talks about in, 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 that, in that chapter, um, all, all things are really ultimately sort of like human time, right? Like yeah. it, it's, uh, you have to turn something that's more or less useless. It's, it's that whole homesteading, uh, appropriating things uh, that were you know, considered useless and then you, you do something with it and put in your labor and make it useful. And what capital goods do is like sort of uh, multiply the effectiveness of, mm-hmm. uh, of your time. And unsurprisingly, that also that building the capital good also takes time. So in a sense, it, 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 because of the time cost of building the capital good, it, it, uh, it ends up being a lot more low time preference, right? Like it, it ends up um, multiplying your effort later, but in order during that time, you, you're not getting the production that you would before. Right. So if you own the capital good, um, then of course you can, you can churn out things much faster than your competitor or somebody else that, that doesn't have that capital good. Um, and you know, like these days you have many layers of capital goods, right? Mm-hmm. Like from people that uh, know how to mine, uh, you know, steel very efficiently to people or iron very efficiently. There's steel mills or, uh, you know, uh, capital goods that are related to ter- turning iron into steel very efficiently. Uh, and then there's 
other capital goods that shape the steel to, you know, some electronic part, and then other ones that take that electronic part and uh, make it into part of your phone. And then there's you like using your phone to go trade for Bitcoin or something like mm -hmm. that, right? Like there's, there's so many levels of capital goods now, and each of them sort of multiplies uh, your the effectiveness of your time. And that's really, I guess, in a sense, what civilization is, is this great multiplier of uh, of your labor uh, mm -hmm. to the point where you can uh, you can you know like I'm I'm a programmer I can code things and live pretty abundantly uh, mm -hmm. as a result of being able to code, um, which you know like even the richest people uh, uh, you know even seventy years ago couldn't couldn't ever imagine being able to do. Um, right with the scale that we have we, we it's 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 an abundance multiplier it's a it's i i suppose what civilization ultimately is yeah yeah this amplification of labor efficiency or mm -hmm. a force multiplier on time something like that and mm -hmm. if you look at it through the scope of okay we transition from being hunters and gatherers to an agricultural society some, mm -hmm. I forget, five, 7,000 years ago. At that transition point, basically 100% of the human labor force is focused on agriculture, right? Or supporting mm -hmm. agriculture directly. You're either farming or mm -hmm. maybe making tools for farmers. Maybe you're defending the, the harvest from uh, attack. Mm -hmm. But through this process of making the production process more roundabout. So saving more capital, allowing us to specialize further and further, we get to something more like today where I think the numbers are sub 5% of the world populations focused on agriculture, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, five out of a hundred people can now feed the hundred, the other 95 mm -hmm. can go and focus on satisfying other wants, you know, more specialized, more specific wants for people. And it's again, that scaffolding through which we're creating wealth and abundance. And the, the author makes a later point that this creates kind of a, a virtuous cycle too, because mm -hmm. as you accumulate more capital, you're able to go out and take even more risk, right? Or delay consumption mm -hmm. even further. So the larger the bait, the larger capital stock base we build, the even more roundabout we can make our production process, which means we can create even more wealth. Um, mm -hmm. And so that, I mean, that's the aim, that's the thrust, or that should be the thrust of a civilization that wants to, to live in wealth mm -hmm. and abundance and peace and all these things. Um, and so that, kind of, I think that's sort of the bedrock for how now he starts to explore monarchy versus mm -hmm. democracy. And he segues into that by first discussing these different factors that influence time preference. Mm -hmm. um, which I think are important for evaluating the governance models later. So the first uh, category of factors he discusses are external factors influencing time preference. Um, and the general dichotomy here is, so if, if you have an expectation of a positive future, so things are gonna be better in the future, this tends to make you want to save less today because you think things are going to be better in the future so it doesn't necessarily matter as much whereas if you have an expectation of a negative future it would actually lower your time preference you would want to 
accumulate more capital, uh, accumulate more options, basically, for whatever the, the negative future you're moving towards. I'm wondering, is that why so many people are hoarding dollars today? We see so much on the sidelines. This is just well, people are yeah, kind of that, forced to be prepared for a anticipated negative future. Yeah, so uh, you you made a really good point that uh, for, that you know Hapa also articulated that I I really don't want to miss, which is that wealth has a flywheel effect, right? Mm-hmm. The more wealth you have, the less concerned you have to be about now, and the more concerned you can be for the future, and that in turn builds essentially more capital goods mm-hmm. that allows you to have more abundance later which allows you to plan more for later, there, there's a flywheel effect, mm-hmm. right? And it, it, it multiplies upon itself and you get more and more abundance. The question then is, uh, is really about, okay, what's on the other side of that equation? What's, what, what, what are the forces or the incentives that cause people go to have a higher time preference mm-hmm. or to uh, do all of these other things? And that, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, there there are external factors that sometimes happen that that cause us to either have uh, lower or higher time preference. And as he points out, um, there are negative expected future events which will cause people to become a lot more low time preference. So, for example, um, if you know that there's a hurricane coming to your town, then of course you're going to buy up groceries and things just in case mm-hmm. something goes wrong. Um, and in fact, if if you uh, like, I, I don't think many of us have been in war situations, but that that happens all. If you if you expect the war, you hoard food, right? Mm-hmm. You hoard everything mm-hmm. that you need because you have no idea what will get disrupted. You might not get access to food later on. Um, there there might not even be food available to buy. So. You, you, you go and make sure you're planning for the future. And negative uh, expectations sort of set, set us up for that. Now, to your question, is that why people are hoarding dollars? Yes, that, that is exactly what people tend to do when they expect bad things to happen. There's a flight to safety, right? Like they, they uh, whatever is the most liquid uh, you're, you're going to keep around, um, but you know that that sort of assumes a functioning market. So in a sense, the people hoarding dollars are still expecting there to be a functioning market in the midst of whatever chaos they're expecting. So probably they're expecting some sort of like economic um, disruption of some kind, but not mm-hmm. a complete market disruption where goods aren't coming to the market and so on. Uh, and I don't know if that's that's exactly the right right thing to be doing. Uh, although you know I, there there are people um i believe every mormon is supposed to like keep like a year stock of food in their basement exactly because they expect you know just in case things go bad and mm. you can actually buy packages in, uh, at costco.com where they'll sell you an entire year's worth of food that you could store in your basement hmm. for like 3000 bucks or something so there are things like that, uh, that uh, there are behaviors like that that do happen. The other thing, though, about that is after it passes, then everyone's time preference like just sort of shoots up. It's, it's kind mm-hmm. of a spring. And I think we're kind of seeing that right now because 
I, I mean, we all remember like a year and a half ago, everyone was hoarding toilet paper and, uh, you know, like frozen pizzas and things like that because mm -hmm. they, they, they had no idea what the heck uh, would happen with the economy. But then as soon as like all the mask mandates started to go away and stuff, people started spending like crazy. You can't get anything now, right? Yeah. We're, we're at a point where like, like no business can hire uh, hire anybody and we're, uh, you know you, you try to go buy furniture and nobody has any furniture there's like supply chain problems all over the place you you just can't go like everyone is consuming um mm -hmm. and it, you know the the expectation is essentially temporary it does lower time preference when you're expecting a disaster mm -hmm. but it comes back comes right back up as soon as it ends. And you can kind of see that in a lot of like post-war scenarios where people just kind of go crazy and get drunk every night and do kind of crazy stuff because mm -hmm. they, they, it's, it's an artificial low time preference, if that makes sense. And that, that's the point I wanted to make. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. Um, and the way I think about it is there's the, the best antidote to uncertainty is options right so that mm -hmm. if you don't know what's going to happen the best preparation you can make is to have as many options available as possible right so you can deal with any eventuality um and it just seems like yeah, to your point it's the most liquid asset represents the greatest optionality effectively so people are stocking dollars in anticipation of you know being able to deal with any situation um the next factor he points to that influences time preference is biological factors. Hmm. And I think the obvious one here is maturity, right? There's the old marshmallow experiment where the <laughs> child's given one marshmallow now, but if they can, you know, withstand eating it for five minutes, they get two marshmallows and the kids that succeed in doing it tend to exhibit lower time preference and are more successful later in life, et cetera. Um, Clearly, as you shift from childhood into adolescence and adulthood, you tend to have at least the ability to have a lower time preference. I would say on average, you probably have a lower time preference. Um, but then he makes the further point that actually in senility, like when you get close to the end, your time mm -hmm. preference tends to come back up because there's not much future mm -hmm. left. So you're going to consume mm -hmm. your savings or whatever capital you've managed to accumulate in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is this perhaps this idea that senility raises your time preference? Do you think this is contributing to the cultural divide in the world and that we kind of have the baby boomers who control most of the wealth in the world? Now, mm -hmm. uh, I think the bulk, the bulge of that demographic is in retirement age and we have more entering retirement age every day. Do you think that's contributing to this little bit of chaos we're seeing in the world is, you know, mm -hmm. this big demographic is getting their time preference pushed up just by virtue of their, their age and, and biology? Yeah, um, it, it's kind of a weird situation that I don't think we've really seen in the world before, because in a sense, baby boomers came up in the age of like all these social services and the welfare state and, and things like that. So they're used to having things taken care of them, not by their parents, but by the state. Mm -hmm. And this in turn means that they are uh, really high time preference, uh, more so than you would be, say, if you 
lived uh, 150 years ago because you, you had to worry about, okay, well, what are my children going to do, right? Like, mm-hmm. And you didn't have just like one or two kids like baby boomers do today, but you probably had like six or seven kids and you you were you worried about, okay, well, you know, the first four are fine, but the last three, you know, the um, you know, they, they might, you know, what I, I need to make sure that they're taken care of or that the first four are uh, wealthy enough that they can take care of some of the, you know, ones that are straggling or something like that. Uh, so there, there was a low time preference in the future, uh, about the future, even in your old age, because of the legacy that you would want to leave behind, especially as you had children, because mm. you still care about them. And that that's an important consideration. But with baby boomers, um, you know, like they they had less kids than, you know, the generation before. Um, you know, they they were the people they were the baby boom. Right. And um they they decided to have uh less kids and so on uh so many of them don't even have kids so uh for them it's going to be much higher type preference um but even for the ones that did they don't have as many kids so they don't they're they're still going to have relatively high preference compared to say people a few generations before Mm. um uh, so to answer your question, is that why we're somewhat culturally divided? Because baby boomers do have sort of like a high time preference, um, you know, compared uh, to everybody else, like, say, people between the ages of 20 and 50 or something like that. Uh, you know, that I, I guess that would be like uh, Gen X and the, and the millennials, something to that effect. Um, yeah, they they certainly have a very different perspective and might want to build things up a little bit more. Um, I, I I do think that there's definitely something to that, and uh, and especially in the last year, uh, like going back to the whole COVID thing, you know, who were who the people that were the most vulnerable? Well, it was the unhealthy older people, and mm-hmm. most of those were baby boomers. The, all the decision makers were more or less baby boomers, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they're much older. Um, and they impose sort of this very high time preference lockdown on everybody else who weren't in danger. <laughs> like if, if yeah. you're a healthy young adult, uh, it it did not matter whether you caught COVID, you you would survive. So in, in a sense, that that is the big sort of like cultural divide that, uh, that contributed to the division we have today, which is, you know, like you, you have a lot of people that, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you have a lot of different divisions, but yeah, that this, one of the major ones that, that, uh, were caused, uh, in part by the boomers, extraordinary high time preference. Yeah. So many, this is a confluence of factors. And there's kind of a bell curve, as we just said, you know, like earlier in life, you tend to have a higher time preference. You know, I imagine mm-hmm. even in your early 20s, a lot of people are just kind of spending, not saving as much. Then you get into your prime earning years, which I think is somewhere like 28 to 44, maybe people tend mm-hmm. to get a little more focused on savings, lower time preference. And then in older age, you kind of flip back um, to high time preference again. Um. Yeah, really interesting. And then we'll get into like clearly fiat currency has a big influence on that, which I think we'll get into here. But mm-hmm. this was an 
going deeper to the factors that influence time preference, I thought this was excellent. We're now in kind of the personal, social, and institutional factors. Hoppe makes the point that savings, it's not just lowering the time preference of the individual, right? Mm. That it's actually creating um, more investment in the economy, which is increasing. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll just read this uh, excerpt real quick here. Mm. So Hoppe says, quote, moreover, in an exchange economy, the saver slash investor also contributes to a lowering of the time preference rate of non-savers. With the accumulation of capital goods, the relative scarcity of labor services increases and wage rates, ceteris paribus, all things being equal, will rise. Higher wage rates imply a rising supply of present goods for previous non-savers. Thus, even those individuals who were previously non-savers will see their personal time preference rates fall, unquote. So this process of saving, it's not just for the individual saver. It's actually creating uh, an influence on the time preferences of others around them, not even around them, just in the economy to actually um, induce a lower time preference. So, I mean, savings, it's almost indistinguishable from civilization in a way it's like the more we save the more capital we accumulate we are you're actually fostering civilization not just within yourself but without as well yeah and uh you know we we talked about capital goods um sort of being a multiplier of uh the labor of your time um mm -hmm. savings is really uh a form of a capital good right like it, it yeah. it's uh it has that same flywheel effect where you know, the more you have uh, savings, the more capital goods you get, the more capital goods you get, the more efficient everything is, the more abundance there is, and the more, uh, the less needs you're going to have because there, everything's going to be cheaper and you're, you're, you're going to be able to afford everything. Um, and that in turn means that even for non-savers, they're able to get things more cheaply and they'll have more abundance, in which case they can invest in you know longer term things because their current needs are satisfied um that is certainly not the case for most people today because of debt right like the, right. this is the opposite of saving and it does all of the opposite and it also yes. has a flywheel effect uh which is very unfortunate but it but the saving part is literally building up civilization it's it's creating capital goods mm -hmm. and um uh you know multiplying the labor of each person uh significantly so that you can you can do uh, a lot more with the you know short amount of time that we have on earth um and that in turn causes everything everyone else's to get a, uh, get uh more efficient as well because you're able to sell those goods at a cheaper price to everybody else so mm -hmm. it, it like essentially i think what hoppe is describing is there is a sort of like a natural uh, virtuous cycle here uh, at play that um, as people save, uh, they they cause even more people to save mm -hmm. and that causes even more abundance and better goods and better products and better services. Um, and again, this is only really available from uh, an, a, a rationalistic a priori knowledge kind mm -hmm. of theory 
rather than sort of the Keynesian one, which says, okay, well, then investment numbers need to go up. So we're going to print money to invest in whatever, because then yeah. we're going to have way more investment in the economy and investment is good, right? Like, yeah. and we create capital goods. Well, no, actually, oftentimes what you end up doing is wasting it and you make processes that nobody wants very efficient instead of processes that people do want efficient. And yes. you, you have a significant inefficiency. And in order to fund all of that, you have to steal from everybody else. Um, and really, you're stealing from their savings, uh, destroying their capital formation and right. their capital goods in order to do so. So and like th this is where like Austrian economic theory helps us to understand how this actually works so that we can put the money um, into good use instead of wasteful use like Keynesians tend to do. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's Keynesianism is antithetical to this whole process because what well, i mean their aim is actually to try and increase consumption in the economy right so we're i guess the theory there or their perspective is it by actually depreciating the dollar at least this is the ostensible mm -hmm. purpose you're actually encouraging mm -hmm. consumption so you're you're stimulating the economy right that's kind of their go-to mm -hmm. policy tool every time there's an economic shutter or shock Print more money, stimulate consumption, get things revved back up. But this is does a number of things. You know, one, it's destroying accountability, frankly. So the businesses that are not turning a profit by actually um, servicing the productivity of civilization, they're not wiped out and, and their capital uh reassimilated into other other aims. Um mm -hmm. And this, I think that's a really important point too, that accountability, or we could say skin in the game, right? Fiat, mm -hmm. fiat and Keynesianism sort of eliminate accountability or skin in the game. That's a really important point later when we start to compare monarchy and democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, in general, the monarch has a lot more skin in the game, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, you know, fiat is actually incentivizing dissaving. So if we said that mm -hmm. saving savings is civilization in a way, or at least the scaffolding of civilization. Debt is the opposite of that, you know, dissaving and then ultimately debt is opposite to that. It's actually decivilizing. It's destructive. Mm -hmm. And this is something that is so deeply embedded in our socioeconomic system today. And the numbers are scary, frankly, I think it's 350% global debt to GDP. Last I checked, probably worse since. Um, so it's really bad, um, <laughs> on the, on these other, again, looking at factors, influencing time preference makes this other great point that essentially voluntary exchange contributes to a lowering of time preference, whereas mm -hmm. intermittent involuntary exchange, which we might call as crime, call crime right? Someone's taking mm -hmm. something from you actually raises time preference. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a interesting difference here because crime is something that's intermittent and it can be insured against, right? You can hire security, you can buy insurance, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Um, so there's a, there's a way to kind of overcome that risk mm -hmm. or to hedge that risk, if you will. And he makes a point that 
once successfully hedged, we can resume the process of lowering our time preference or building savings, mm-hmm. um, which is great. But <laughs> when you look at government interference, mm-hmm. it's this continuous involuntary exchange. There's no way to hedge against. I mean, there, there are ways to hedge against it, but um, before Bitcoin, let's say there was no real good way to hedge against the predations of private property, even holding physical gold is a better option than say holding real estate perhaps, but we still had an executive order 6102 that mm-hmm. they, you know, outlawed the ownership of gold. So he makes the point that, that when it's continuous, that you cannot insure against it. And this has a really detrimental effect on time preference. Mm-hmm. So this whole, you know, government intervention, government action, uh, anytime it's non-consensual, it's extremely damaging to time preference and therefore decivilizing. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I thought that was a really good point that he made uh, regarding trade. First of all, that uh, when you do a trade and it's voluntary, that means that uh, you're getting something that you want more uh, for something that you want less. So uh, it, by definition, because it's voluntary, you are getting. Um, more satisfied as a result of that trade mm-hmm. and that you have more abundance. And both parties to a trade do that. And this is part of the flywheel effect uh, is that if you have a capital good or you you have the ability to produce something in abundance, you're, you know the marginal utility of an extra unit is probably not going to be worth very much to you. But mm-hmm. if it's the first unit to somebody else, that's going to be very useful to them. Say you're a cobbler or something like that. Every shoe you make, you're, you're not going to be using them. You probably have plenty of shoes already. Uh, but if it's the first pair of shoes for somebody, that's going to make them a lot more efficient and and it's going to be very abundant, even if it's their second or third pair of shoes or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Um, and whatever you get back, um, you know, if it's if it's money, then you can go use that to go buy something else that you need, like butter or something like that. But any any voluntary trade, if it's shoes for butter, um, you know, the, the butter is going to be much more useful to you than the marginal cost of the sh- or marginal uh, utility of the shoe. So you're both sort of um, gaining in that regard. And that, that's a very good thing. That, that's part of the civilization building. And what's extraordinary about, uh, you know, capital goods and specialization of labor and things of that nature. Um, but the thing that he, he talks about, about, uh, you know, involuntary exchange or crime, um, is that it? It is. It takes away from this uh, virtuous cycle of capital formation and creating capital goods and specialization and create um, and being able to trade and everyone getting uh, you know continuous abundance. It, it it puts friction into this flywheel effect that we were talking about mm-hmm. because if you are um, it. The minute somebody steals from somebody or, uh, you know, commits a crime in some sort of involuntary exchange, now you have to spend all this money on security, Mm -hmm. which before you didn't have to spend money on. So that Mm. that's not a capital good. Right. Like it's not producing anything. Uh, It's it's a security good. It's to secure what you already have. Um, and that in turn means that, uh, you know, it, it's not actually 
beneficial necessarily to everybody else. Uh, it, it's not really building up civilization. Um, one, one of the things that I find really sad is that you go to some of the poorest countries in the world and you look at their homes and immediately you notice that they all have walls around them. Because mm -hmm. if it's at all nice, right, or anything that people... People are going to come in and steal, and that that right. means that they have to put put all of those resources that could have been put towards another home, for example. Yes. So that they have to build walls and security and all this other stuff, um, and that that that's detrimental to you know that that uh, society. And this is why, like, uh, crime is in a sense like uh, so uh, so evil because. It, it make it, it it not only like uh, steals the rightful property of somebody else, but it causes spending on stuff that doesn't necessarily produce anything. Mm -hmm. And and his point about government theft is even more poignant because in a sense, when government takes stuff away, um, you, you can't just build walls. I guess you can hire better lawyers or something like that, but there's no you know easy way or there there's no spending that you can do to prevent them from passing a new law to take more money away from you right and that and that's that's the difficulty is that um because of that uncertainty you're you're always constantly uh sort of discounting future earnings in relation to the expected amount that they're taking away mm -hmm. um and that that that's not just like a one-time uh like uh you know um uh like rock into a flywheel or something that's mm -hmm. like a stick that's just there constantly yes. slowing everything yeah. down um and that that's much worse and and this is sort of like the framework in which he you know like evaluates government is to what degree can they slow everything down and make things much worse because in a sense uh i think he's an anarcho-capitalist like no government is the best government because like at least you can have certainty uh, and you can do things to prevent uh, whatever uh, crimes might be committed against you. But mm -hmm. crime by government is just uh, absolutely like destructive in every single way, um, you know, despite them having written most of the history books and making themselves out to look uh, amazing. Uh, that's actually at least, you know, given this a priori knowledge, that's not actually how it is. And they're, they're a hindrance more than anything. Yeah, again, it's such a powerful point, actually, that we have in government this unhedgeable risk in a way, right? It's just like, you know, you're going to be stolen from. You don't know how much. You don't know in what way, whether it's inflation, taxation, outright confiscation. Uh, he goes on, I think, to make the later point that even any limitation on what you can do with your property is a form of theft, right? So this could be certain. He talks about law and, and whatnot. Um, and this, I guess, is the most detrimental factor to time preference. So this is the most decivilizing thing you can really do to a group of humans trying to organize themselves is have this constant specter of theft and risk that you can't do anything about. You can't insure it away. You can't hedge it. Uh, and it, just, like you said, I love the stick in a flywheel. It's a great, <laughs> it just keeps, <laughs> just gets worse over time. Um, and to his point too, that these security costs, 
which, I mean, this is just for crime. You know, you can build the walls, you can hire the security forces, whatever. They really would be wasteful if the property could not be stolen, mm -hmm. right? So it's almost like a, uh, it's a waste of resources if the security were embedded in the asset, which is where something like Bitcoin, I think, really shines, right? It just has a security mm -hmm. built right into it. So it allows us to free up these other expenditures on security and allocate them towards something more productive. Hmm. And this idea, I think this is something I just really can't stop thinking about that I think very fundamentally, you know, voluntary exchange or voluntarism, maybe more generally, it's the only avenue to value creation, right? You hmm. cannot have both parties entering a transaction and leaving it better off unless it's voluntary. It has to be purely voluntary. If there's any coercion involved, it's necessarily like by definition, destructive. Mm.